from the celebratory studios of WLVT in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. It's time for a fresh look at our first Lehigh Valley hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. This special broadcast marked the 20th anniversary of continuous episodes of You Bet Your Garden, as well as the first show from our new headquarters here at PBS 39 in the Christmas City. Our musical director, Ken Queter, performs live to help celebrate that transition. And you'll hear important advice from Umar Micah, the man who gives poison ivy a rash. Plus, we explain why chemical fertilizers make flea beetles fat and happy. And of course, take your fabulous phone call questions, tips, tricks, suggestions, and amazingly adroit assertions. So light the Moravian star, cats and kittens, because it all starts right here, right now. Hey, welcome to the first episode of You Bet Your Garden, coming to you from the fabulous studios of WLVT in Bethlehem, PA. That was my good friend, Kenny Queter, and his partner, Mark Teague, playing us on live, because this show is also our 20th anniversary. We got a lot to get done. We have my good friend Umar here, the poison ivy expert, going to tell us the best and safest ways to get rid of that nasty vine and tell us stories of taking tons out of people's landscapes. And we're also going to tell you why flea beetles love chemical fertilizers. That's a lot to do. We better hop right to your fascinating phone calls. The new number, 833-PBS-WLVT which means 833-727-9588. Nevi, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Great to be on your show. I'm glad to have you on our very first show out of Bethlehem. It's very exciting. Where is Nevi? Um, I'm right off next to uh, Valley Forge National Park in Chesterbrook. Oh, okay. Very good. You got a lot of deer to help you do your gardening and pruning. Yes, for sure. So this question that I had is about uh, the very popular houseplant Kalan Koi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Okay. Um, but my husband gifted me one last year in July, and it flowered twice for me. And then I put it out on the deck uh, this spring, and it surprisingly did very well. Mm -hmm. And it has suddenly bloomed a lot, but um, but it is not flowering again this year at all. Okay. Well, are you saying it flowered last year, but not this year? Yes, and it has become much bigger. It is almost four times its size now. Well, they're going to do that, you know. Yeah, and it looks very beautiful, but I don't know how to make it bloom now. Well, you know, it might not be anything you did or could have done. This was a wretched summer by all accounts in southeast Pennsylvania, the mid-Atlantic states. I mean, we got something like 127 inches of rain in June alone, and all the plants got waterlogged. There really wasn't a lot of sun, and there, when there was sun, it was too hot. What do you typically do with this plant when you bring it back inside for the, quote, winter? It's my first year, so I don't know. <laughs> Last year, I had kept it inside, and it bloomed twice. I don't know what to do when I bring it in. Okay, so here's the basic rules for bringing plants in from the outdoors. Uh, you get a garden hose or a pressurized sprayer, and you set the nozzle to its strongest setting. You want like a laser beam of water. You cradle the plant with one hand, and then as best you can, you really soak it down. You get the undersides okay. of the leaves. You get into all the little nooks and crannies and crevices. Then you move the plant to another place and do exactly the same thing the next day. And then you might even want to wipe down the rim to make sure there's no insects trying to get in on that little plant uh, pot part. And then it should be safe to bring the plant inside. And you say it bloomed inside for you really well the first year, right? Yes. Okay, so I would put it back in, you know, easy peasy, put it back into exactly the same conditions. Uh, 
Now, if you don't see buds forming, go out and get a, a natural fertilizer, a liquid fertilizer, something with very low numbers on the label. Every fertilizer label has three numbers called the NPK numbers. You don't want any number to be really above six. You want to feed this really gently, and you want the middle number to be the highest. That is the, the fruiting nutrient. That's the one okay. that's going to give you the most, uh, the most flowers. Now, you don't want to overfeed it, but it sounds like, and I'm presuming you haven't fed it? No, I haven't done anything. Okay. I just added some compost to... Oh, that's excellent. Good yeah. job. Good job. But it, it probably had a lot of fertilizer in the soil when, you, when it was first bought for you. And now if it's that size, it could probably use a little boost. So just a gentle, organic, liquid fertilizer designed for house plants with uh, a, the middle number higher than the first and the third. And really, that's oh. all you should have to do. It sounds like the plant is basically healthy. And that's 90% of the issue. Great. Thank you very much. 1-833-PBS-WLVT. Or, actually it's the same thing, 833-727-9588. David, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky today, David. How are you doing, sir? Doing good, thank you. And where is David doing good? So I am in Colmar, Pennsylvania, in Hatfield Township, outside Philly. Very good. What can we do for David in the Maw of Coal? So I have uh, two, about 40-year-old pin oaks grown in the front of my yard. And from the ground come these mushrooms. And there's been a, a, a tremendous number of mushrooms this year. And they seem to fall, like, in line with the roots. And I just, I'm not sure if they're good for the tree, bad for the tree, or what, I, what actions I should take to try to uh, get rid of them or possibly treat the tree? Well, um, mushrooms generally are attracted by dead wood. Um, a lot of times when we have mushrooms popping up out of a lawn, it means somebody had a tree taken down, but they left the roots in the ground. The roots are decomposing. The mushroom is helping that uh, move along. Sometimes it's construction debris. People, uh, the contractor just buries all the wood, and then you're going to have mushrooms growing out of that soil for like 10 years. Now, how do these pin oaks look in general? The trees seem to look good. The canopy is pretty full. Um, there are maybe one, one of the two trees has, has maybe a branch with some uh, brownish, orangish looking stuff on the bark which I'll get trimmed and cut off this fall. Very good. Actually, winter. Wait till winter. See, if you, trim, if you trim branches like that in the fall, the tree will respond with new growth. That can be damaged severely in the winter. So you want the tree to be sound asleep in, uh, in the winter or even early spring as the tree is emerging from dormancy. That's another safe time. Okay. But the trees look, seem to be healthy. And has there been any injury to the roots? Um, well, they, the roots stick close to the surface. It's a, it's a heavy clay soil. The, the trees are surrounded by lawn, no ground cover. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't treated the lawn in years since I've, since I've been there with any kind of artificial fertilizers or anything like that. Um, so the roots are close to the surface, and it, they look like they've been probably struck by a lawnmower a few times. Okay, so here's what's going on. When the lawnmower strikes the roots, it chips off little pieces of wood. Those pieces of wood are dead. Fungal spores in the environment are going to land on that dead wood. They're going to grow mushrooms, and that is the, quote, fruit that uses up the energy in the wood to transform the wood back into more soil. So the situation, um, in this kind of a situation, what you want to do is get a nice big load of compost and starting about, oh, six inches away from the main trunk of the tree. You want to be where the root flare begins. You don't want to cover any bark. Spread an inch or two of compost out 
in a circle until the roots are no longer exposed. And if I'm correct, and it's just little chippies of wood in there, it really won't take long for the mushrooms to decompose them. So I would suggest you not do anything, although if you want to be clever in a good way, we had such a wet year in your area that it would not be unwise to dust that area first with some wood ash. Do you know anybody who burns wood for heat in the winter? Uh, yeah, I think I do. Okay, so get some wood ash and spread it around where the mushrooms are. Mushrooms like this are gonna need acidic soil to really thrive. The wood ash is highly alkaline. It's the equivalent of liming your lawn, the calcium carbonate equivalency of lime and wood ash is very close to the same. Um, but people are desperate to get rid of their wood ash, so there's no reason to buy anything. So spread some wood ash, uh, cover the roots with compost. That won't hurt them, although above ground roots are very healthy for a tree if nobody's banging into them. Oh, great. Um, is How thickly should I put the, the wood ash down? Like how? Oh, not, not that much, not that much. Maybe do a couple of cups for the whole tree. Make sure you, you get all the areas where the mushrooms are, okay? Perfect, thank you very much. All right, well, thank you, David. Take care. 833-PBS-WLVT is our new phone number. Yes, I know those aren't numbers, and I hate going looking for those letters on my phone. So I'll tell you it translates to 833-727-9588. Please call that anytime. If we're not around, leave us a message, and we'll get you on the air. Like Carol. Carol, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm excited to be with you. I'm excited to have you, Carol. Where are you excited? I'm excited at 7th and Pine. Oh, an excellent neighborhood in Philadelphia. The trauma surgeon who saved my life after a bad car accident in 1976, Dr. Bob Jama. He lived at 7th and Pine. Oh, great. That's a great neighborhood down in uh, the true old city. What can we do for Carol in uh, on Pine Street? Well, I have a miniature uh, peach tree that is uh, that needs to be moved. Uh, right right now, it is well, I have a glorious fig tree, and it's gotten so big that every time I go by my little peach tree, I hear, help! Oh, just give it some figs and tell it to grow up, Carol. <laughs> so what shall I do? H how are you doing on getting peaches from this thing? Well, um, this, this year, I, I mean, it really is starved for light. I, I only had five peaches, and they were very small and hard, and when I picked them, they gave me a raspberry. <laughs> well, that's good. Peaches and raspberries go very well together, especially over top of vanilla ice cream. So peaches have a fairly long taproot. Um, okay. They are not easy to move. Um, do you have a, a place, you know, Seventh and Pine, you and I know, uh, this is truly the old city. Seventh and Pine was laid out in the 1700s. Uh, most people don't have large backyards if they got one at all. So do you really have a place to move it to? Well, uh, what I want to move it to uh, a very large pot that I have. Are you going to bring that pot in if we get a really severe winter? Okay. See, your fig tree has probably suffered winter damage some winters, but not during mild winters, correct? Well, yeah, five years ago when we had that, that awful cold spell, it did die down to the ground. Exactly. But because its roots were in the ground and it's a super hardy plant, it grew back from the roots. If you get a year like that with a peach in a pot, it will die back to the ground as well, and it will also stay dead. <laughs> so, you know, this is one of the hardest things in horticulture, um, but there are times when we as gardeners have reached the point where we have everything we possibly can in the ground, and it's time to do some culling. Uh -huh. 
um, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to move the entire tree, say, to give to a friend out in the suburbs or something like that? Well, it, it's a mini. Right. Well, you mean it's a dwarf? No, no. It's a miniature fruit tree. How, how miniature is it, Carol? Uh about four and a half feet tall. Okay. And, and, and they, they are uh, supposed to be able to grow in pots. Okay, yeah, but what they don't tell you is that's in, um, that's down in the Carolinas, that's in, a, <laughs> that's in a place without a real winter. Now, I presume you're in a courtyard and you're protected, but again, this tree has a long taproot going into the ground, and that makes trees very difficult to transplant. I would ixnay the existing tree, get another one, and set it up in a big pot in a protected corner. That would give you your best chance, because otherwise you'd have to take cuttings and root it to a different root stock. You know, sometimes it's best to cut our losses. Uh, one of the things gardeners are, are worst at is, is getting rid of plants that aren't in the right place. So my advice would just be to buy it again, cut it down. Uh, do you have a fireplace? You know anybody who has a fireplace? <laughs> I have fireplaces, but they don't work. Oh, okay. If you know anybody seriously who has a fireplace or a wood stove, when that wood dries, it's incredibly sought after. Apple wood and peach wood will scent the entire house if you just throw one branch on uh, to the rest of a fire. But that's my honest advice. It wouldn't survive the move. If you really like the tree, get a new one, get a great container for it, put it in a sunnier spot, and everybody's going to be happier. Okay. All right? Well, of course I'm going to try to move it anyway. Uh, okay. Well, good, good. <laughs> Send us pictures. We love a good laugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carol. Good luck. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind you that you're listening to a special rebroadcast of the very first show from our new home here at PBS 39 in the Christmas City. It's also our 20th anniversary show. Yippee! Coming up next, Umar Micah, the arch enemy of poison ivy, reveals how to deal with that nasty vine. Plus, a treatise on eggplant-killing flea beetles and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to a very special holiday rebroadcast of You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yes, we will take more of your fabulous phone calls. We'll also reveal why flea beetles love when you use chemical fertilizers. But now it's time to welcome our very special guest, an old friend, Umar Mayak, the poison ivy horticulturalist, who is here to tell us not only his great adventures in attacking tons of poison ivy in single landscapes, but also have some good tips for homeowners who just have small amounts that they want to clear. Umar, welcome back to You Bet Your Garden, and a special welcome for the first You Bet Your Garden from Bethlehem, PA. Garden on, Mike. Great job. <laughs> Thank you, Umar. Now, you got your start at the Philadelphia Zoo, but not as a horticulturalist. Um, yeah, horticulturalist and groundskeeper at Philadelphia Zoo, yes. Okay, so I'm wrong already, ladies and gentlemen. Let's mark that time. Under one minute, <laughs> I've already made my first mistake. Mm -hmm. You can place your bets now. Vegas takes us. <laughs> All right, but how did you get, so getting rid of poison ivy was part of your job. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, a invasive plant and uh, we wanted to get rid of it, and I got rid of it uh, mostly by getting it on my skin and carrying it out like that. <laughs> <laughs> so then I had to get a little bit smart and figure out uh, s some better tricks. Now, uh, it occurs to me, Umar, that uh, clearing poison ivy at the zoo could be quite exciting. What if it's in where the gorillas or the tigers or a rhino is living? Yeah, that's a real challenge, and the, the biggest challenge is uh, dealing with the keepers to get them to okay everything, close all the doors, lock them up, make sure the padlocks are on, and then then we, you get about, uh, about 20 minutes 
until the zoo opens. You have to be finished before the zoo opens. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, I thought you said the gate was going to be locked. <laughs> yeah, that's a real problem. Now, is there anything special about the zoo that it had a bigger poison ivy problem than other places, or it was just you had this timetable in these animals who would like to play ping pong with your head? Well, we're on a fly zone. We're on one of the uh, bird migrating fly zones. And also uh, the zoo being an animal habitat. So we had a lot of fruiting plants, a lot of um, uh, apples, a lot of uh, things that birds really relish. So when they came to eat those things, of course, they're very generous and want to leave what they can give, which is the seeds which are in their gut. Mm -hmm. Those often include poison ivy. Right, and when they poop out poison ivy seeds, they not only drop the seed back onto the ground, but they fertilize it as well. Yep, double, uh, it's, a, it's a double benefit. Did you have any zoo animals that actively ate the poison ivy? Um, sometimes squirrels got after the poison ivy, uh, but um, oftentimes it's not something that's available to them to eat. You know, because we hear about goats being used to clear poison ivy and other invasive plants. Although we should point out right now that poison ivy is a Native American plant. It may be considered invasive and problematic, um, but it's not foreign. No, not at all, not foreign. And um, I know it occurs all throughout North America. Uh, are there poison ivy variants throughout the world? Um, yeah, in, uh, in Asia, in, um, in East Asia, uh, Japan, uh, China, and then Western China, and uh, Korea, and then down further south in the tropical areas in uh, Java and Borneo at the tops of the highest mountains it'll grow. And were these plants, do you believe, taken there by migratory birds? Um, yeah, over the millennium, yep. That's, that, uh, that's amazing. Um, and you know that for many years, poison ivy was not recognized as a problem. You probably know Jefferson and Washington grew it as ornamentals in their gardens. They love the fall color of the leaves. The fall color is gorgeous. So you got started when you left the zoo, you formed a company uh, you call yourself the poison ivy horticulturalist. And as I told you the first time I met you, you have the best website name in the history of the internet. I don't want poison ivy.com. That was a good one. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> and did you get started? Uh, and obviously, what your company does is go around to landscapes and you get rid of the poison ivy. Do people ever call you for small jobs, or basically do they call you when half of the landscape, including the house and driveway, is poison ivy? From one plant to 50 plants, uh, it, it, it all depends on the, the, the uh, placement in the landscape. So it can, be very, it can be a very troublesome plant with just one. And you have a crew of five? Uh, yeah, we're nine now, yes, crew nine. Okay, so yeah. business is good. Yes, it is. Now, you have removed from home landscapes some impossible to imagine tonnage. Yeah, the largest single weight of one plant was in uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey, 930 pounds. Uh, that was just one poison ivy plant. It was a 25-year-old plant. And was that going up the side of a tree? Uh, it was growing up the side of a choke cherry and then reaching out and grabbing another second choke cherry. Oh, man. So what's the first thing you do when you're a crew? I know you brought your tools of the trade, and I want to show this. Um, bring it over to me because you have this hilarious uh, little way to identify poison ivy. Can I give you a cr constructive criticism? Please. Why is it cute? It shouldn't be cute. You even call it happily, and happily stands for human and poison ivy leaflet interface. But you have underneath the leaflets three resemble me, because you want kids to think it's got a head and two hands. 
Yes. Right? Yeah. Couldn't you have a snarling face? What was the poison thing that you put on your cabinets so the kids wouldn't drink the Clorox, Mr. Yuck or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something like that. I think this used to, this should be Mr. Yuck. Okay. You know. Uh, Yeah. Appreciate that. More like it. So um, when you go in, do you do you spend the first time doing an evaluation? Um, sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes the clients are ready to go. Sometimes we get the call and we we quote them a range of a price, and they're like, "Can you come today?" <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we can. And are your guys all in spacesuits, hazmat suits? Uh, no, we 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 started out in full Tyvek suits, but we but there was two problems with them. One problem is they're very hot. Yeah. The other problem is I don't care what size Tyvek suit you're in. When you're in a Tyvek suit, you're the Hulk, and you're just ripping <laughs> into shreds. That would seem good. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's just that it's just that Hulk what, smash <laughs> poison ivy, puny <laughs> ivy. <laughs> yeah. Hulk rip crotch out of poison <laughs> out of out of Tyvek suit, you know. And so we found that if we wear heavy gardening clothes and a Tyvek sleeve, which will come up to the uh, elbow, double uh, double gloves, and that's sufficient. You have one of those. Yes. May we see it? Yes. Would you put it on? Um, and then when you get back to the shop, what do you do to wash those clothes? Um, the Tyvek sleeves are discarded mm-hmm. after each job, or sometimes at lunchtime when they take them off, they'll get rid of them. That's the um, the Tyvek sleeve really takes the bulk of the of the poison ivy resin. And by the end um, of the day, uh, you're not going to ask me to turn my head and cough, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the guys see these gloves, we get a little squirrely. You know. <laughs> the uh, the gloves go on. And then the tie, the sleeves, and these have been specially modified because the Tyvek gets sewn, uh, but and that poison ivy resin is so small that that the amount that can give a person a rash is equivalent to one half of a grain of table salt. Mm-hmm. So in order to make it a little bit more safe, we've put a piece of Tyvek tape over that and modified it. Um, Okay, let's see it on. I'm trying. Okay, here one side is is. We're hoping he has used these before. There we go. And then there's a little piece of uh, a thumber. A thumber here, yeah. Yeah, Okay, cool. That'll go on to hold it. Of course, I'd be wearing long sleeves. Have my sleeves rolled up. So can people? You don't. Oh wow! And then another glove on top. The nitrile glove goes on top. Now that's. That's what this I is call safe horticulture. This is kids. good protection. Yeah. This is a way to make sure you go out in the summer. I mean, in the spring, you don't know whether there's anything there that's going to be allergic. It's a good precaution the first time. Now, do we throw away the nitro gloves? The nitro glove. It depends on how brave you are. Mm-hmm. The nitro gloves can be saved. They can be washed. Right. Um, and what do they cost? They cost about. Uh, they're about a dollar each. Dollar okay. Pair. So in the trash. Yeah. In the trash. <laughs> So when you're taking them off, you have the you have a uh, the nitrile glove underneath. And the white glove has never touched anything, right? So the white glove is safe to remove those, mm-hmm. and you don't pick up poison ivy. Right. Now some people prefer. I'm one of them. They will prefer instead of the nitrile next to the skin a very thin cotton glove. These are called factory gloves, mm-hmm. and this will go on. Actually, I, I use those when I look at rare comic books and baseball cards. Okay, that's great. And what I, I prefer this because my hands get real sweaty, and then my nails start to crack, and after a couple weeks, that's... People don't realize, that's one of the problem with respirators and yeah. dust masks and stuff is, you know, you heat up real fast. Yeah. Now, can, can we go out and find these in better garden centers, this set? Uh, right now, the only place that you can find these is on my website. Okay, which is which, I don't want poison mm, Yeah. Okay. But uh, you can, of course, you can find the nitrile gloves. You can find uh, the. But these you can't ones. find the sleeves. You can't find the sleeves. You can buy them on that famous uh, online website. Yeah. They're not going to be modified. The one named after the river. Uh, yes, the big <laughs> ri- the big river. <laughs> 
Okay, yeah. so this is what a homeowner would use. Yes. And do you agree with me that before you proceed to pull poison ivy or anything else, you really soak the soil to loosen up the roots? It's great to do that. I find that um, when the poison ivy is rooting, the main thing, the main point is to get out those runners and the nodes in between those runners. So, Because the runners can go quite a distance. The, uh, yeah, I pulled one the other day uh, in North Jersey. It was 30 feet long. Yeah. And, um, and, and the, if there's a small root, like it's like a like the size of a spaghetti or right. the size of a thread, mm -hmm. that root can be cut off. As long as you get the node, that root is not going to grow. But what does the node look like? The node is, um, uh, the, well, if you imagine uh, where, where the, uh, the, 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 the vine or the runner is running, every place that it stops and sends up a new leaf, that's a node. Okay. So it's a tiny little fist. Imagine your fist. Right. So your arm and then your fist is a little... A little bulkier. So you got to get everything out that's not a straight line. Everything, yeah, you get the straight line and you get that fist and anything, any little roots in the ground, don't even bother with them. You don't have to dig all those up. They're okay. not going to regrow. It's just the, they're going to the regrow from the node. will regrow. Yes. Okay. That's yeah. important. Now, you brought us a couple of your favorite tools. These are for large-scale work? Uh, well, these are we use in poison ivy, but I recommend. But this looks like something Hawkman would carry <laughs> on, didn't this? The ISIS uh, yeah. saber or something? Yes, it is. Yeah, and uh, this is you know the Japanese are great for garden tools. Garden tools, and they have a sickle for every every vegetable and everything. You're has telling me this is a poison ivy sickle? This well, this is what I call it. No, I call it. Um, uh, well, it is. Well, <laughs> yeah, we might, don't forget we're on TV. Yeah, <laughs> um, I call it the weeding fist. Okay. That's my name for it. it sounds like so, Bruce Lee talk. Yeah, right. So when you have it, uh, in you're working in your garden, you're working with a trowel, you're working with your shears, your clip clip or your dip dip. With this, your rip rip. Mm -hmm. You're ripping everything out. It's got a cutting edge on one on the side here. It's serrated and it's got a sharp cutting edge here. You cut this way, you cut this way, and the good thing about this is, what you would be working in your garden, it takes you about two hours to do, you'll do with this in 20 minutes. And where do you get these? Uh, these you can buy from that famous site on the, uh, <laughs> right, the river right site. Right, on the internet. Yeah. yeah, and you can also get this out of my website too. Okay. It's a great, it's a great tool. It'll, it'll deal with those I'm gonna take this weeks. next time I go to the electric factory uh, late at night. <laughs> would be good. And um, that looks to me like a poacher's spade. A poacher's spade, yeah. Yeah, po we call it a poacher's spade because when you were starving to death and your landlord wouldn't let you hunt on his land, you went out late at night with a spade like that and you dug up a rabbit warren and you ran away with the rabbit real fast. Mm -hmm. And the poacher's spade was the, the spade that would open up the ground real fast. Right. You also kind of bang the rabbit on top of the head if you wanted to. Right, and that's what I use it too for, Mike. You, uh, that's a great, a, a great explanation. This is this is when you're in your yard and you only have 45 minutes till the soccer practice. Mm -hmm. You need something which is going to. And you see the foot things here, the foot paths uh, where you put your foot up there. Um, they are invaluable when you're digging in your garden. Now you're digging with your legs instead of your arms. You're digging with your legs and the, all the power is coming right here. So with a big regular shovel, those big shovels that we use, they were really invented when there wasn't a lot of machinery to unload ships and unload uh, railroad cars and there were gangs of men who did that. Now this is more of a this is a modern type of a thing, or like the poachers use. You got to get in and you got to get out quick. That's when you need something like this. I only use a standard shovel to move compost around mm -hmm. or to dig a new planting hole. Everything else, I use a poacher spade. I have four different sizes. Okay, they're great tools. Yeah. In addition to everything else, you run. Um, a Poison Ivy Conference. You've been doing this for many years now, right? Yes, uh, this will be, uh, uh, 2019 will be the seventh conference. And how many days does it run? It runs for, well, it runs for two days now. Okay, and you train other people like you 
um, to become poison ivy horticulturalists? You're kind of investing in your own competition? Yeah, I love to. Uh, I love competition. Yeah. So your next conference is March 2019, and you always hold them at the Philadelphia Zoo. Oh, right. And all this information can be found at I don't want poison ivy dot com. One eight three three PBS WLVT. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week explaining why flea beetles love when you use chemical fertilizers. But first, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 1-833-PBS-WLVT or 833-727-9588. You can call either one. They're the same thing. Valerie, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's, I love your show. Oh, thank you so much, Val. It's good to have you here. Uh, where is Val? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Excellent. But my question concerns Stratford-upon-Avon in jolly old England. Oh, you are so lucky that I was actually in Stratford back in the, in the 70s and absolutely loved it. That was one of the most unique places in so England. You may, have, you may have done exactly what I did a year ago, which was to steal a mulberry berry from Shakespeare's tree at the new house, his his final house in Stratford. Uh -huh. I took the berry in my hand, back to my hotel. I preserved it. Uh, I read something on the Internet about soaking the berry and then taking the seeds out and keeping them in a moist uh, piece of filter paper in my refrigerator for a year. Then I planted them. Um, but you never... You never took them across international lines without a plant sanitary permit, did you, Valerie? Uh, certainly not. There you go. Good, good. We just wanted to make sure that you would use the, the proper disintegrating transformer to get them over legally. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, uh, so, so I got them over legally. They sat in my refrigerator for a year, and then I planted them early this summer. And they came up, and okay. things looked pretty good until a silkworm, or at least a caterpillar of some sort, got to one of them and ate it down entirely. Oh, you moment, are, actually, you are correct. Mulberries were planted around the country in great numbers for the burgeoning silkworm trade. Mulberries are a very weird cane fruit. My friend Lee Reich, who is just the expert on small fruits and all kind of fruits in general, has explained that technically there's like three or four different types of mulberries. Okay. Sometimes they're incredibly tasty and sometimes they're incredibly bland, but it's, it's really a hit or miss. But it's interesting that you knew that it was silkworms. After I had my little run-in with the silkworm, I got worried about them, and I brought a few of the pots in the house. Okay. And they continued to grow, and I went to a plant shop and said, what should I feed my mulberry? And he said, buy this nitrogen. Nitrogen, is that what I hope say? you didn't do uh, it. I did, and then I heard you on the radio the very next week, week saying, never feed nitrogen to a fruit plant. So yeah. I'm calling to see what should I feed them. Uh, well, first you should go back and yell at the guy. <laughs> and, and, and take the nitrogen back to him. Um, right now, see, these are plants that need to experience a winter dormancy. So, okay. so you are probably good to bring them in to protect them. But this is not the time to feed them. They're going to go dormant. This, is, okay. this would be like the equivalent of having a rack of lamb um, while your bed is being made. You know, you really don't want to do that. Okay. Okay. And these are strong plants. So uh, you have a spot outside where you want to replant them, right? Um, I'm not sure. I'm going to keep them in the pots for a while. I might give one to the university to plant. If you're going to keep tree. them in the pots, you have to plant the pots. They, oh. they have to be outside with their roots underground. Okay, for the winter. They have yes, to be they, they have a chilling requirement like apples and okay. peaches. Oh, thank you so much. This is so useful. Okay, good. So if you want to put them in the ground, pots and all, that's fine. Makes them easy to lift out the next year. The only okay. thing you're going to, quote, feed them is you're going to mulch them with an inch of compost. Okay. 
Just compost. Yeah. Okay? These things grow wild in the woods. They're yeah, never fed. They fruit like mad. Your guy is crazy. They're kind of ugly. Yeah, they're, they're not. They're all over but in They're not even a one-season plant, Val. Oh, they aren't? No. They just sometimes have great fruit. Oh. But in Shakespeare's yard, it looks more like a tree than a bushy weed. It's 300 it years old. <laughs> So, but can I make mine look like a tree? Yeah, live for 300 years. <laughs> Is there any kind of pruning that you would uh, suggest once they get a little bit bigger? Hey, we got to keep these things alive before we start getting fancy, Val. <laughs> okay, well, then I'll call you again later. <laughs> You're going to put them in the ground with their roots underground, either potted or unpotted. You're going to spread some compost around them, and then you're going to get some BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. You don't have to remember that. You just want the organic caterpillar killer. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is great. And then they'll put on a lot of biomass every year. Just keep feeding them compost. Okay. Will do. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, Val. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I'll be honored to deliver the keynote address Wednesday, October 17th at the Capitol Speakers Club of Washington, D.C., an organization founded over 65 years ago to empower women through the development of public speaking skills. It's at the Columbia Country Club in Chevy Chase, Maryland. I'll be joining past luminaries that have included Lady Bird Johnson and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's members only, but members may bring guests. From WLVT in Bethlehem, PA, I'm your host, Mike McGrath. As promised, it's time for the question of the week, which we're calling Flea Beetles Love Chemical Fertilizers. Amy in Augusta, Georgia writes, I'm a beginning gardener. We planted three tomato plants in May and they flourished. However, come August, we noticed hornworms and flea beetles. I made a homemade pesticide of soap, cayenne pepper, garlic, and water, and sprayed it on my plants in the evening. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this email. So I'm going to interrupt Amy right now to warn everybody, never spray your plants with water or anything else in the evening. You don't want plants, especially disease-prone plants like tomatoes, to stay wet overnight. It's an invitation to illness. The only acceptable time to spray is in the early morning when the sun's rays will quickly dry off the leaves. And now, back to our exciting story. Amy continues that the spraying, quote, seemed to help a little bit with the hornworms, but we continued to see more on the plants. We then started seeing flea beetles, and that's when we started wondering if the tomatoes were okay to eat and how to get rid of these pests. She concludes her first email with, please help, I have a love. No, make that an obsession with tomatoes. Please tell me if it's okay to eat a tomato that was infested with insects. And we would like to have an even bigger garden next year, but not if all these bugs are gonna come to dinner. Well, flea beetles are very common pests of eggplant. They make it a difficult crop for home gardeners to grow, including me. But I've never seen them on tomatoes. Hornworms, the larval form of the gigantic and impressive sphinx moth, are the largest and hungriest caterpillars in North America, and they are well-known foes of tomatoes. The basic tactic here is to look for missing parts of your plants and large deposits of their frass at the bottom of the plants. Then you run your hands up and down the plants until you find something soft that isn't a tomato, and then you squish it. Yes, it is safe to eat the good parts of fruits that have been insect attacked. Heck, if you accidentally eat a flea beetle, that just means you got some extra protein in your diet. Oh, Amy also asked if flea beetles were a danger to her pets, and that answer is no. They do hop like fleas, but they're true beetles. Now, my next step was to ask Amy our standard questions. Are you growing in raised beds or flat earth? How do you water? What do you feed? Etc. She replied, we would like to start a bigger garden next year and raise beds, but right now we're growing in planters. As for feeding, we, quote, sprinkle miracle Grow on the plants once a week, and I water them once a day in the evening. All right, so there are three obvious stressors here. 
Why stress stress? Because stress plants are more attractive to garden pests than happy, healthy plants. A plant that's watered correctly and fed appropriately has the power to resist insect attack, either through the development of naturally occurring chemicals that repel pests, or in the incredible case of sweet corn, the ability to generate pheromones that actually call beneficial insects to their aid when they're attacked. This is perhaps the coolest superpower in the plant world. Plants that are weakened by incorrect watering and fed with cheap explosive chemical fertilizers? Not so much. They're like somebody who over-imbibed and is now staggering down the wrong street in the wrong neighborhood with $20 bills spilling out of their pocket as they vainly search for a handkerchief they're going to need real soon. They are likely to attract unwanted attention that will give them a worse outcome than a couple of flea beetles. Okay, here's the three stresses. Containers. Containers need to be large for tomatoes. 17-inch pots with good drainage and only one tomato plant per pot. The pot should contain what's professionally called a soil-free mix, a.k.a. potting soil or seed-starting mix. You'll have to go to a real garden center or order by mail to find the right kind, but make sure the mix does not include chemical fertilizers, which may be the only kind of mix you'll find in the big box stores. Watering, or as we say in Philadelphia, watering. Watering every day guarantees problems. Plants want an inch of water or rain, preferably rain, once a week. Yes, once a week. If you water plants every day, their roots will stay at the very top of the soil. If you soak them deeply, it takes several hours to deliver an inch of water to a garden, and then let them go dry for several days, they'll develop deep roots to follow the receding water and deep roots make for healthy plants. And finally, food. I know as much about miracle Grow as a kosher rabbi knows about cuts of pork, but even I know that you don't sprinkle the nasty stuff. You dissolve it in water and then use it to slowly weaken and kill your plants. Chemical fertilizers are combinations of elements that are highly explosive and they're present in their salt form. And neither explosives or salt are good for your plants. The only miracle here is that people continue to fall for this nonsense. Feed your soil, not your plants. Make sure their growing medium is rich with compost and your insect invasions will be few. All right. I want to thank everybody here at WLVT for their extreme patience in doing this first simulcast of You Bet Your Garden. Before we get to the credits, I want to especially thank our good friends Kenny Queter and Mark Teague for coming in to play live on our 20th anniversary show. And we've arranged a little something special. A lot of people are asking the question, how do you feel about leaving Philadelphia for the Lehigh Valley? And the boys and I have summed it up in a song that some of you may find familiar. Okay, take it, boys. Change. Oh, 
is burned, you cannot change. And this burn, you cannot change. The Lord knows I can't change. All right. For those of you who wondered how I feel about the move from Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley, there's your musical answer. Thanks, guys. Keep on playing. Because I hope our listeners enjoyed our interesting advice about those nasty flea beetles. And luckily for them, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to shotgun my eggplants if I don't get out of the studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-PBS-WLVT, which translates to 833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at YBYG at WLVT.org. Please include your location. You'll find all this new contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you will always find the answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show every day at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Kelly Hurd and Jake Boyer are our video editors. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, is powerless against the color yellow. Our director is harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Tavia Minnick works the phones. Andrea Cummins makes the equipment work. Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jim McDonald. Our big kahuna and late for a meeting is Tim Fallon. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, taking a holiday break this week. But as sure as my number one fan, Walt Anderson, will leave the water running with the sink stopper in the entire hour he watches the show, I'll be back to see you again next week.